Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. As promised in the Identity Series, I'm going to sort of reverse things and look the other direction now. I've spent some time contemplating the many challenges that we face in the modern world, trying to create a sense of ourselves and how we interact in the world, and hopefully having that uh, sense of ourselves reflected back. And again, <clears throat> I've mentioned this before, but it bears repeating as we start looking at possible responses to these challenges that the need to have our sense uh, sort of verified and reinforced by our environment in many different possible ways, there's not one way to do that, is biological. It's not, um, it's not some luxury or some random nice thing you can get if everything else is going well or some such. It's a biological necessity for us to feel ourselves reflected in our environment and the people and the places and the spaces and um, the basically that our environment feeds back to us some sense of ourselves. This is so necessary and so powerful that currently um, it's becoming very clear that loneliness is probably the single most dangerous thing you can experience. That people who suffered endemic loneliness have very high death rates and it's associated with uh, more health problems and greater mortality than heavy smoking and heavy drinking combined. So it's better to drink heavily and smoke heavily and have a sense of community and have a sense of your place in the world that reinforces a sense of healthy identity than it is to be alone and have otherwise healthy lifestyle. So though that kind of depth of psychological need, um, I think, is just often overlooked. We think of identity issues as sort of, you know, curious and nice and fun and, oh, isn't that nice, sort of first world problems. In a way, they are first world problems because uh, earlier cultures did not experience these kinds of problems in the same ways because you didn't, as, as I keep mentioning, you were in environments where people knew you, you knew people, and you had limited access to sort of other challenges that would undermine your sense of yourself. The downside of that was they lacked the fundamental freedoms that we really love um, and that we sort of take moderately for granted. And again, trying to highlight that those freedoms, while wonderful in many ways, have also created a whole slew of new challenges. So tonight I would like to start responding to this by going, okay, um, I'm trying to think of a good analogy. And because I like to garden, I always think of gardening. So I would say, uh, let's start one way to ponder this and one way to begin to respond is to understand or imagine your mind uh, as a garden. And you need to ask yourself, uh, you don't need to, if you would like to, uh, it might be helpful if you ask yourself, what kind of garden do I want? What do I want in my garden? What do I want to cultivate? What do I want to grow? What, do, what feedback do I want? These sorts of questions. And the reason this is important is because our access to stimulus is unimaginably high. We have the internet, which will allow us to stream anything we want, anytime we want, basically. We have um, access to broadcast radio. We have access to music of unimaginable varieties. We have access to books um, that we can order online or electronically or libraries. We have access to people and places and ideas. Um, to a degree, as to say, it's not infinite, but compared to human capacity, it's the next best thing. It may as well be infinite. And this has grown exponentially in the last two or three hundred years, while the human capacity to deal with it has grown not at all. And so people, you know, we have all these people are like, oh, well, you know, we're expanding our abilities and, you know, modern humans can pay attention to more things or I can multitask. All of this is nonsense. We can't, we won't. 
um, and it doesn't help us. So the analogy, another analogy, we'll stack analogies up here. Why not? Um, is if someone told you to drink the Atlantic Ocean, it would be like, no, you can't. If somebody said, well, I'll drink the Pacific Ocean. Well, the Pacific Ocean is bigger than the Atlantic Ocean, but from a drinkability standpoint, it just really doesn't matter. They're not different. <laughs> you know, you can't drink the one, making it whatever many times larger does not make it less drinkable. It was just that you can't drink that much. It's not, not possible. And so having this dramatic increase in uh, opportunity to consume and experience and see uh, does not in any way uh, increase our capacity or change our capacity to deal with it. And so what we have to do is become, we have to do it. What would be helpful is if we create really good ways of trying to uh, sort and, and keep much of that stimulus away from us because we just can't deal with it. Another note here is much of the stimulus, particularly if we're talking about the media, is not, as I mentioned last time, is not only not helpful to you, it's actively trying to damage you. And which means that if it comes with, like this is the classic commercial, but there's many other examples of this, you know, you might like a TV show, but if it has these commercials, you go, oh, the commercials are no big deal. But you're actually paying a really high tax, not just in time, but if those commercials do get a little bit and disturb you, create fear or dis-ease or uh, a sense of low self-worth or uh, a want or a need, then what you're paying a really shockingly high price when you think of it cumulatively for a, a pleasure, an entertainment, a joy, right? Something that's really quite great. And that's sort of what the kind of questions are, are helpful to begin pondering. So uh, to this end, one thing to say is, you know, again, what is it that I want to pay attention to? <clears throat> what is it that I want in my mind? For, for me, and this is going to be different for everybody, I'm not, there's absolutely no you know, single answer, and this is the great advantage of the world in which we live, is we have a diversity of opportunity to cultivate uh, a, a, a specific sense of ourselves and of our environment that has never existed before. But right now, we tend to simply be drowning in all the evidence, all the struggles that people are having with identity and associated difficulties. We're drowning. We're not swimming. We're just drowning. So what we need to do, or, or one way to respond again, is to ask ourselves, you know, what kind of world, mental world in this case, let's just start there, uh, do I want to inhabit? When, I, when my mind is focusing on something, what is it I want it to focus on? Do I want to focus on things that are beautiful? Um, however you conceptualize beauty. Uh, do I want to focus on things that are intellectually stimulating, perhaps? Or do I want to focus on things that uh, bring me a sense of, of, of love and, and joy? Do I want to focus on things that uh, excite my mind or, or are inspirational or give me, you know, pleasure? So there's any number of ways of, you know, organizing this. And, of course, we aren't going to just do one of these things. You'll have multiple of this. But then if you start creating these filters and you go, oh, okay, I want to be intellectually stimulated. Great. Well, how can you do that and do that in a healthy way that enriches your mind? And, and for me, I, I love to read, of course, and um, people say, oh, what kind of books do you like? And it, and I always have a hard time narrowing this down. I read mostly nonfiction, not entirely, but, but vast quantities of nonfiction. And it turns out that I just really like the mind of the writer. 
you know, there's certain writers you read and whatever subject they're writing on becomes interesting because of the nature of that person. And so I just, I, I enjoy to an extraordinary degree spending time with another great mind. I might not agree with them about everything, but there's just somehow their tone, their different attitudes, the outlooks, the insights. And it's like, wow, what a great pleasure that is. So I spend much of my time, much of my free time, or however you conceptualize that, uh, with these people whose minds both inspire and challenge me and expand my, my sense of the world. And I find it very comforting and very reassuring in some ways, particularly when if, if I read something from someone who I'm like, wow, this person is really, you know, on fire and I'm enjoying this. And boy, look at this idea, this idea. And then they'll come across an idea that maybe I've had, generally not articulated very well or as well as these people have. And then you go, oh, so here I am in this conversation in my mind, of course, with this person who I'm enjoying and now they've articulated something that I've felt or I've thought, but just not articulated as well. And it's like, oh, there's a sense of, of recognition. There's a sense that, you know, perhaps I'm not as crazy as I think I am. You know, that gives you this little bit of feedback that goes, oh, okay, yes, I'm doing all right. I've got some ideas. These things are flowing. And those little moments, again, are not trivial. They're really profoundly important. As I keep bringing up the monkeys, because again, if you watch the the chimp tribes or whatever, they, they continuously do this. They are constantly reaching out for or having put on them or receiving and giving this, this feedback just almost nonstop. And we often do not get it. Um, and Or if we do get it, it's not in healthy ways. And generally in books, although not exclusively, and then you can think, I'll give you a few examples, but generally in books that are written for, you know, history or philosophy, history, philosophy, the goal of the author is to, to communicate, is to say, hey, I've got these ideas, I have this cool thing, these insights, this research I've done, and I want to share it with you, and hopefully you'll like it. Uh, this is very different from a work of, say, propaganda, where the goal of the author is to say, hey... I want to convince you of something and I will do anything I can to make you feel this way, to go along with me. So I always like books about the end of the world. I don't read them, but I like to see them. Um, like It's like I like all conspiracy theories. And so the core of these, the central tenet of these is to appeal to some sense of people's fear. And if I can get your fear stirred up, it's really hard to think. And then my crazy notion about the end of the world, which apparently is supposed to have ended whatever a thousand times by now, but you know, maybe it'll, it's got to be right. Eventually the sun's going to uh, expand and the world's going to burn out. But you know, until then they tend to think it's going to be very soon or the economy's going to collapse or the Chinese are going to invade or whatever it is. So there's not that all books are equally great. It's just that, you know, there are books that try and exploit these weaknesses um, but there's just many, many, many more books, and there's just plenty of books that are not written under those terms. And so to look for the material that goes, oh, hey, this person is trying to basically communicate with me, to help me understand, to have insight, and it would be great. You know, this is, this has a possibility, well, but I don't know, but at least it has the possibility of providing that. And you can, in this, just, you can put this on any, in any, realm of of your life okay if i'm going to read a magazine what magazine do i want to read if i'm going to visit a website what website 
you know, do I want to v- visit a website that talks about uh, landscape gardening and beauty? Uh, do I want to visit a website that talks about, you know, investment in stock markets? You know, it's just whichever ones appeal to you, that's great. But just be sure, you know, to ask yourself, is are these the people, are these the ideas, are these the feelings and emotions that I want in me? And I think it's another level that's often overlooked. Um, I was at a place and it was muted, but there was a Fox News uh was on the TV, like it was at a restaurant, you know, those restaurants that have TVs in, which is always weird to me, but they exist. And this, for whatever reason, had Fox News on, but it was muted. And so I couldn't hear anything that people were saying, which was probably for the best, but you could see their faces. And so I was having a very otherwise pleasant lunch. And every time I looked up, there was another angry, upset person. And then there would be another angry, upset person. There'd be another angry, upset person. And I'm like, why would anybody want to spend their time in a continual succession of angry, upset people? I just can't believe this would be healthy for you. But this is not unique to Fox News. Most of the news broadcasts, most of the time, are appealing to some sense of fear uh, that the world is bad, the things are disordered, terrible stuff is going on. You know, just and, and not in the content, right? That's what I was trying to, to pinpoint here. It's not in what they're saying, although that can be terrible as well, but the tone and the presentation itself tells you, oh my goodness, I should be scared. I should be upset. Something scary is coming, something terrifying, something's threatening to me. And that structure is just innate in so much material. And to begin to recognize this and go, hey, wait a second. I mean, Maybe I want to know this, but I, I, I want, I'm interested in this kind of information, but I'm certainly not interested in taking it in in this negative and unpleasant format, right? I can find out, certainly there must be some way to find out the news of the day without being subjected to, to fear and, 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 and dis, discomfort. And then, of course, that, then the ads come, right? And then so here, be afraid, be discomfort, be afraid, and now buy something, Right, and so it's just a horrible mix of of disabling intellectual stimuli that makes us emotionally ill at ease, and then exploit that with a commercial that then amplifies it or tries to redress it. Either way, it's the same same emotional game. Um, and that's just a question to ask. You know, is this what you want? I talk to my students. Um, I do teach a class called Popular Culture, or I taught a class called Popular Culture, and. Um, I would ask my students, right, like, do you ever listen to music basically as a mood enhancer or a mood changer? And they're all like, yes, absolutely. Absolutely. Music affects our moods. And so we have a lovely chat about this. One of my favorite subjects. I just love music. And I do the same thing. I think most people do. Uh, But I often don't know if people think about it that carefully because I do think it's important to ask yourself, oh, if I'm going to listen to music, how does that affect me? What kind of music am I listening to? What is it? You know, is it music that gets me up? Like, oh, okay, I'm good. I feel good. I'm rolling. Uh, one, one of my friends is really into hip hop. Man, he gets so happy. He gets his tunes on, and he rolls the window down, and he's rolling in his car, and he, you know, he just he's just so happy. It gets him up. It gets him moving in his day. This is this is how he rolls. And it's like, oh, that's great. That's wonderful. That's not my thing, but it's like. He's just so happy. It's like, yeah, it must be good for him uh, on, and, and the guys that he likes. Um, I'm, I listen to a lot of classical music, uh, particularly when I'm, if I'm in a car, I like to listen to classical music. And, you know, I just, it, it, different tone, different feel. I mean, there's a lot of different classical musics. 
but uh, the overall tenor tends to be, you know, uh, lighter and more open and more complex and more subtle. And that just, uh, you know, some days I'll just drive and the light will be on the mountains and I'm just like, oh, this is why I just want to drive in circles and listen to, you know, Tchaikovsky play against the light. And, and it's just, it's just wonderful. What a great experience and feeling. Um, and so it's a way of asking yourself, hey, you know, what kind of music can I play? What kind of music do I want to play? And how does it make me feel? And I see that, you know, sometimes people like, you know, this really heavy metal, it kind of gets them fired up and angry, which is like, hey, that's an emotion, that's a feeling, that's good. But, you know, how often do you want to feel fired up and angry? Is, is it like a permanent emotion that you want? Uh, or should we go for other, other uh, a wider range? You know, what else should we listen to? Um, and those sorts of questions. In fact, the, the length of a song also comes into play. You know, if a song or, or the music you listen to is only three or four minutes long all the time, there's a very limited amount of emotional range that can be covered or developed compared to a symphony or a large jazz suite or, a, you know, you know, it's, it's, ah, it's so narrow. Nothing that's wrong. It's just very constrained as a format. And so these kinds of questions asking, well, again, do, how much and what do I want to have my attention we call this, you know, of course, they call it now the attention economy, but this is no huge breakthrough or revelation. Um, most of you or many of you are probably familiar with Orwell's 1984, which is a book which is often mentioned, but I think, again, often not read because there's so much in there that's brilliant and, and, and accurate, but un, unmentioned. And, and one of the ones I keep returning to is that uh, TV screens and noise and announcements were playing continuously. And the big, or one of the big, the main act of rebellion of our main character in 1984 was to write a journal in which he was recording his own thoughts and that he could go back and look at them. And this gave him a sense of continuity and a sense of himself reflecting on himself. And that just seems very small, seems like this tiny thing, but it's, I mean, for Orwell, it's like, hey, what's the core rebellion against this sort of big brother system? The core rebellion is to develop a stable sense of yourself and have some means of reflecting upon that and having it be stable. And I mention this because it's so horrible, and I've mentioned this before because I just always obsess on it, the disorienting effect of having your timelines and histories change continuously so if, if you use Facebook or something like this these many of these media accounts if you scroll down one time you'll see something you can come back the next day scroll through what was theoretically the same history that history has changed it's not what was there the day before it won't be there tomorrow and so this disorients us in time it disorients your own sense of well, yesterday when I scrolled down, I saw this, this, and this. Today, if I scroll down through that same theoretical section, well, some of that stuff has been is further away, and some of it I can't find at all. This is this is strange. Um, Instagram has a thing called stories, which actually disappear. I'm it, it, that notion of saying, oh, it's, it makes it ephemeral, which is kind of interesting. You know, it's more like theater on one hand. But on the other hand, if I see something and I go, oh, that's cool, and I want to see it again, well, it's gone. Like, that's that's been lost. It's, it's not. It's no longer available as a reference. And it sort of 
vanishes the, its own history, which is a very interesting phenomenon. I'm, I'm, I'm really still trying to grasp exactly why this is and how this is being used and manipulated. But it's precisely the opposite of keeping a diary. In keeping a diary, you write something down and it's there. And if you want to go back and look at it, you can go back and see what you were thinking about or how you were feeling or who you were talking to or what you were doing a week, a month, a year, 10 years ago. But if someone comes in and takes out those pages periodically or rearranges them or puts in new pages, that is hugely disturbing. And notice if you were actually doing a diary and that was happening without you knowing, it would make you feel a little crazy. You would be like, no, I, I don't remember that. that did that happen? Was that, did I? And eventually you would not be able to feel like you could trust your own self as a diarist. And I think not to that extent, but I do think this is sort of where we are. What, where is the past? When was the past? How, how much is going on now relative to, and how does it relate to the events that had taken place a week ago, a month ago, a year ago? All that just seems to be compressed into an ever more, a limited present that inundates us with an infinite amount of information that we can't process. And so that's why when I say, you know, think about a garden, you know, what is it that you want to plant in the garden? What is it that you want to see, feel, hear? What is it that you want to fill your mind every day? By the way, this is absolutely transformative. If you, you know, if you pay attention to particular things, then you, this will start to form your worldview, your outlook, your sense of yourself, your sense of the world around you. So if you, you know, pay attention to, you know, painting and reading about painters and, and thinking about painting and you start painting, then your, your world will become much more filled with color and light and these personalities from history. And you'll probably start interacting with painters and other artists in your actual life. And this will just utterly transform the shape of your world. And you'll spend maybe 20, 30, 40% of your time thinking about painters and beauty and light and color um, more than you would have otherwise. Now, that may be good or may be bad for you, but it is it would be a radical change. And But whatever it is you're interested in, that sort of sense of attention is, is really valuable and meaningful in constructing a sense of yourself. And when our attention is jerked side by side by side all the time, always taken from us or being exploited for reasons not for our health or benefit, then it, we, we can't do that. We can't form, we can't focus on anything for a significant percentage of time and therefore we can't get a strong sense of it. We can't get a sense of personal feedback and it just dilutes our sense of who we are. Another aspect of this is they say we live in a world of choice now and it's like, ah, Hmm, I don't know. I mean, yes, absolutely compared to history, but it's a very weird kind of choice, often mediated. And my, my favorite example here is Netflix. Um, now, Netflix is, a, you probably everybody knows, is a streaming video service, mostly. And on that streaming video service, at any time, there's about four to 5,000 different shows and movies, of which about 3,998 are utterly stupid and preposterous. I'd have no idea why anybody subscribes to Netflix. If you do, that's great, but I just don't understand it at all, zero, because there's almost nothing on there. And what's on there is carefully run by algorithms to make what Netflix wants you to watch available and what Netflix doesn't want you to watch not available. 
a friend of mine in Germany said, hey, you have to watch this show. You have to watch this TV show. It's going to blow your mind called Babylon Berlin. That's the production values will blow your mind. So, okay, finally. Sorry, I relented. Even though I never watched TV shows, I thought, okay, I'll relent and I'll, I'll watch a little bit of this. So I did. Um, but the first thing I discovered is, for some reason, Netflix did not want me to watch this show because I had the damnedest time finding it. Even when I'm typing in like Babylon, it wasn't coming up. I'm like, why is that not coming up? I just opened my subscription service to watch one show. And that show, when I searched for it, so at first I thought it wasn't on there. So I said, okay, Babylon, Berlin. And I finally found it. And even after I found it, when I logged out and logged back in and went to find it, I couldn't find it. It was usually like continue watch or whatever. Nope. So they buried it again. I'm like, wow, that's weird. So one, for whatever reason, they weren't that interested in me having it watch it. Also, at some point, that'll just go away. I won't be able to watch it. So movies come on and then they go away. So if you say, oh, I want to watch that movie that I watched two months ago. Oh, it's gone. It's, it's gone now. Okay, I have, to, I have to watch something else. Contrast that with the Netflix DVD subscription service, which still exists. It might be a separate business, but it still exists. Over 100,000 titles. Essentially, you can watch any movie you want. I mean, not, of course, there's things missing, but 100,000 titles is a lot of titles. And they're there. And so I'm not sure why people would decide that I'll allow Netflix to choose a very small percentage of their own library, much of which is nonsense and crap that I have no interest in, and then go with that rather than allow me to select what I want to watch. And so there's this whole notion of mediation or curation, if you will, which we run into constantly because in a world of overwhelming choice, curating does become this incredibly important function. But who's curating it and why? Netflix is curating it based on the notion they want to maximize their revenue. So they want to have the minimum number of movies on there that keep people subscribing. So they'll put a lot of cheap, uh, generally low quality stuff. And then a few major movies, which they'll take off as soon because people watch them um, because they have to pay more for those. And so, my, so their goal is to have just enough of the material to keep you subscribed and not too much. Um, and, and then on the other hand, with the DVDs, apparently once they buy them, they must have distribution rights or something. I don't understand how this works legally because you can just rent, you know, any of the titles for a hundred thousand plus title options and watch whatever you want, you know, in the comfort of your home. And so it's this very interesting decision that people have made because, of course, the, the streaming service is vastly, vastly more popular than the DVD service. And so people have decided either the instantaneous matters or they just don't care that Netflix curates well enough, which is maybe that's fine. But if you really ask yourself, like, oh, what do I want to watch? So, again, because I love gardening, I would like if, if Netflix was filled with gardening videos, I would probably subscribe to Netflix. But it's not filled with gardening videos. But if you look at the DVD collection, um, they have a vastly larger quantity of documentaries and histories and shows all about gardening. But they don't want to make that available to stream. I don't know why. Probably because there are not a lot of people like me that want to watch a bunch of shows on gardening. So, But if I am interested in gardening or whatever it is you're interested in, ask yourself, is my subscription services filled with that? If not, you probably want to get rid of them. Because what happens is you'll go, oh, well, I don't have what I really want, but this is good enough. 
Now this means they've selected precisely for this. This is not what you want, but it's good enough for whatever your purpose is now. Whereas if you could select what you wanted, it would probably be something that reinforced an aspect of you, just like we've talked about. And we're under these kinds of pressures all the time because so much of our world is curated because it's infinitely large relative to us. And so it needs to be that you have to start asking, well, who do I want to participate with who's doing the curation? Who do I trust? Who do I think is giving me something of value? Who really is interested in, uh, you know, what's a really great new classical recording what's uh what's an interesting garden that i might want to visit what's a what's a good new history book that that's really you know gonna gonna bring me insight and joy when i read it those sorts of questions and if you think if you say oh i think netflix is really has my best interests at heart yeah well you're wrong i mean i don't know what else to say but you're wrong they do not have your best interests at heart they're trying to make the maximum amount of money off your subscription fee that they can and so, like I said, make a list of if you could absolutely watch anything you wanted and what are you most interested in and what subjects, documentaries, actors, actresses, directors, and then compare that to the list of what is actually on Netflix at any given moment or Amazon Prime or whatever all these other ones are. And I think what you'll discover is like, hey, this is crap. Um, similarly, uh, Disney Plus came out, just staying with the media, because this is such a, a core about them. We'll move off in a second. But Disney Plus came out with their streaming service, and, then, and their big pitch was, because, um, again, we talked about this in classes, uh, watch anything you, watch all your Disney classics now, you know, for whatever it is a month, and now you can watch all the Disney classics that you've ever wanted. And pe people like Disney films, and Disney's made a lot of films. They have a big catalog. But I, I read an article about it, and, and the author of the article was clearly very uh, aware of how the industry works and he asked directly to whoever the, the, the you know executive type person who was out there promoting he said are you going to keep all these movies up forever and that sort of brought everything to a halt and the executive was like we're going to make sure a large portion of the films that people love will be available through our service which is a way of saying, no, of course not. What we're going to do is get a lot of people signed up and then we're just going to start pulling films out until some small percentage of our catalog is on there, small enough that people, large enough that they stay subscribed, but not everything because we don't want them to be able to watch everything. And this has already happened. It's not, I may not even been out a year. So it's been a year. It's not been much more than that, but they're already pulling stuff out for whatever reason. And so, hey, you can watch any Disney thing you want becomes... Or you can watch any Disney film that we think we should allow you to have on that service that you're paying for. And that model of curation and who's doing the curation and why and what their goal is, you know, really needs to be something or should be something that you start to ponder. And again, a way to begin this is to simply ask yourself, well, what is it I want in my life? What are, what are those things that are important to me? Of course, this brings you right back to the world of philosophy. Maybe these are hopelessly unanswerable questions, but I think there's some good places to start. As I mentioned, you know, ask yourself, if I'm really interested in getting healthy, if you start um, engaging in media of people who are trying to be, get you healthy, you know, you know, uh, good programs, personal trainers, you see people who are exercising, it's motivating. It gets you, you feel like, oh yeah, I'm doing the right thing. I'm participating with the right people. I'm feeling good about myself. I'm meeting, meeting my goal. Hey, this is great. 
Um, but we're not, right? Depending on how that works. So whatever it is, but you need to decide and you need to say for yourself, like, oh, you know, I'd like more joy in, in my life. Is this media? Is this music? Is this TV show? This news? This magazine? This news? Is it bringing me joy? If yes, great. If no, yeah, probably need to move on and look for something else. Same thing with books. Same thing with, you know, just about every aspect of our environment. But again, the media environment has become so toxic and so dangerous and so undermining. And it's not by accident. It is, as I mentioned last time, it is being driven by massive companies who have hired just an army of incredibly well-organized, intelligent, very well-educated researchers who know exactly how to exploit our weaknesses in every possible way. And so this undermines all of the elements that allow us to have identity. So the flip side of that is simply to say, well, what do I want to pay attention to and why and how does that make me feel? And as you ground that and sort of make that yours, you'll start getting a world that feels like the world you're hoping it would be. It's, 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 it's almost a necessary corollary if you start paying attention to you know, a certain aspect of the world, well, that in your mind, in your experience, in your emotions, in your ideas, that will start to grow. For me, I'm always shocked people haven't read, you know, thousands of pages of philosophy when I talk to them, but because some of the people and many of the people I talk to have. And so in, in my world, which is, you know, tiny, obscure, and silly, Plato is a person. Socrates is, is, is an important guy. Heidegger is sort of a villain, but everybody knows who he is. Um, for most people, these names are totally meaningless, which is great, which is fine. I, you know, wonderful. It's a big world. Everybody go about your business. If you haven't heard of Confucius, that's okay. But uh, in my world, my little tiny corner of my world over here, these are major figures that people talk about and make jokes about and, you know, all those wonderful things. And so it makes it feel like the things that I are, think are interesting that come from inside of me are in fact interesting because the world gives them back to me. Because the world goes, oh, here's a here's a Socrates joke. Like, oh, wow, Socrates joke, that's great. That must mean that the people I know about are actually important, or at least important, in this little teeny tiny corner of the world. And now my sense of identity, my sense of self, has been reinforced. It grows a little bit. You feel more grounded. You feel like, oh, okay, I'm not alone. Uh, I'm not crazy. This is actually possible and functional. And so as a strategy for trying to deal with the sorts of unhelpful and poisonous pressures that we're under, I think it's just necessary. I mean, people don't have to do it, but I think to be healthy and have a sense of self, it is absolutely 100% required because the final aspect, not the final aspect, but the, the last aspect I'll discuss tonight of this particular problem is the trick that the industry has worked out is as um, I forget it's a famous quote that free is a very attractive price and so what media and books and websites and everything else want to do that want to do that want to exploit you is they recognize oh I need to make it very very easy and one, one thing that's easy is not to have to pay. There's other things that are e easy, things that are attractive and obvious and simple and all that. So I have to make it easy for you because if I create a barrier, then I lose potential victims. 
right? That's the, basically the rule. If I'm, I'm trying to victimize you in some ways, I don't want there to be buried. I want it to be a very smooth entry. I want you to be able to get in very, if somebody has a limited resource, they tend to create barriers. Like, look, we, we only have so many tables at this restaurant, or we only have so many places on the golf course, so we're going to make it a round of golf super expensive, or we're going to make you have reservations a month out. And so then that reduces it. But if what I have is, if, what if I want to do is exploit you? Well, I have an infinite desire to do that. So I want to have the lowest possible barrier. And so what we've been lulled into this sense of, of the world is that easy things are good, easy to access, don't have to pay for it, don't have to wait for it equals good. And that's what, that's, a, but that's training. We've been trained into that. Unfortunately, or fortunately, just sort of more as an is, those things which tend to give you feedback tend to take a little more work. It's a little harder to read uh, a book than it is to watch uh, a, a simple short TV show that's made for the masses and made to be easily uh, consumable. So, because that's how it's designed, designed to be easy and obvious and not confusing. Whereas something that's more challenging, but also might be more enriching, n n drives its own audience down. And so there's this weird, almost inverse correlation between ease of access and, and facility as it were, and uh, opportunity to give you a sense of positive feedback. And it's not like hard and suffering and brutal and all that, but it's like, oh, you sort of need to give a little and invest a little, and then, oh, then you can get that reciprocal feedback from things. But if there's no, uh, again, classic example from museums, because I hate those little earpieces and docents and a little description tag. I love art history, love art. The, the museum experience sometimes I just find overwhelming and, and just horrible. But what they want to do is they want to make all the paintings really accessible to people. And they feel the way they can do that is to explain it to them. So here's an earpiece. You put it on. You walk up to the painting and it starts telling you something. I have no idea why people want this. You do not want a voice in your head. Again, this is 1984. This is pure 1984. No, when you go up to a painting, you want to see it. With your eyes, your mind, your experience, you want to be there. You do not want some voice in your head, literally in your head. I mean, that's just crazy. It's, again, pure 1984. And that voice keeps you from thinking your own thoughts. The only thought you can think with that voice in your head is, oh, this must be an important painting because the voice is in my head. It was painted in 1432. As if, Who cares when it was painted? I mean, art history is wonderful. Art history in that way, not wonderful, not helpful. Uh, you know, 1432, blah, blah, blah. What, no, look, first thing you got to do is look at the damn painting. Just see the thing. Just see it. And that can be hard. Some paintings are hard to see. It takes time. It takes energy. It takes work. Some paintings are not. They just grab you and you're like, and boom, you can see them. They're just there. They inhabit your mind instantaneously. But if you have a little voice in your head, ah, that mitigates it. And the reason they want to put a voice in people's heads is because they're afraid they won't find the experience valuable or meaningful, that it won't attract them, that it's too hard for them, that they'll get confused, that they'll misunderstand a painting as if, yeah, well, I'm not going to go down that road. You know, that, 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 that somehow then when I want you to come back and I need you to sign up and I need you to be a member and all these other, all this other stuff and, and education and blah, blah, blah. No, forget all, forget all that. The, the purpose of a museum, if it has a purpose at all, 
is for people to encounter this themselves, to be there with the peace, to be have that opportunity to, to spend time with this amazing, uh, you know, curated piece of art from the capacity of, of man that's been selected as a pinnacle of that. And, and yet, no, no, we can't have that. We've got to interfere with that because the p- people might get it wrong and they might not understand it. They might go wrong somehow. Well, part of this is letting people go wrong. I don't know what this wrong means in this context. Of course, it's silly. But it, that, that notion of saying, no, you have to be allowed to have your space, to have your response, whatever that is. You might go, meh, Titian, hack, great. If that's the way you feel about Titian, great. I mean, People tend to disagree with that, but that's okay. Maybe it doesn't appeal to you. You look at it and you just go, man, Titian, anybody could do that. Okay, that's your response. Some people don't like Beethoven. Uh, You know, I don't quite understand it, but Beethoven wrote a lot of music. Why would you like everything Beethoven wrote anyway? So, you know, but, but, but you must like some of it, but maybe not. Not your thing. Hey, that's great, but no, no, no. We've got to explain to you that that's wrong. And having the constant voices in your head in this case, literally in your head with those little earpieces, disrupts that capacity for you to do that, which means it disrupts your capacity to think for yourself and hence have a sense for yourself of what the world is like. And if you don't have a sense of yourself for what the world is like, you can't have a sense of identity or it dramatically disrupts that capacity. And so beginning to learn to curate basically what voices literally or figuratively, go into our minds is really this crucial step um, in beginning to craft a more stable, more healthy, more beneficial sense of identity for ourselves uh, in whatever way that works for any individual. Again, there's not one answer of how to do that, but that we have to do it, I think, is unquestionable. Thank you very much.